0: Tonight, three quick and easy points. Uh, what's what's the devil like? What are his tactics like? And what is resistance like? What's resisting him and pushing back against him like? And a, a quick word. I need to warn you about this because um, otherwise... I fear you might be completely lost. When we stand up and read this in just a minute, remember this is the book of Revelation. Tons of symbols, tons of images. John is like an artist. He's painting for your imagination, not like your philosophical, logical part of your brain. And uh, on top of that, this is basically a fast-forward summary of human history and how the devil has been there at every point in God's rescue mission, rescuing you, or making your rescue possible. The devil's been there at every single decisive point, pushing back. So this is kind of fast forward through human history. We'll explain some things. There's going to be some things that don't make any sense in the first read. But why don't you stand up and uh, we'll read this and then we'll get into it. This is the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 12. Apostle John is speaking. And he says this, And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head was a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon and the seven heads and ten horns, and on his uh, heads seven diadems. Just imagine the picture he's trying to paint, even if you don't understand the exact words he's saying. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child. This is talking about Jesus now. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. This child was caught up to God, rescued, swept away, caught up to God's throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for a season, for 1260 days. Now, war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. They were evicted. You're out of here. Get the hell out. I read an interesting comment on that. Um, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil in Satan, or Hebrew for accuser, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ, or his anointed one, have come. For the accuser of our brothers... "...has been thrown down, the one who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short." Almost done. And when the devil, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth... He's pissed. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. He chased after her. But the woman was given the, the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly away from the serpent into the wilderness, into the place where she's to be nourished for a time, a times and a half a time. The serpent, man, he's just getting angrier. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth over the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But even the earth came to help to the help of the woman. And the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed the river and the dragon had poured forth from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and he went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, i.e. you, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Let's pray and we'll read that last verse in a little bit. Lord Jesus, wow, That's not how we talk every day. It's not how we look at our world and make sense of what's happening. So help us again to peer over John's shoulders as he's trying to describe what he saw. And he's reaching for words and images and symbols because he can't capture it just in mere words. And so, Jesus, my simple request tonight is what it is every week. Please just let us see you. Please let us see the devil, know what he's like. And know that his expiration date is coming very swiftly, that we might endure with strength. Help us tonight, we pray. We need it. Amen. Alright, why don't you take a seat. Let's start simple. When you think of the devil, whether you're a church person or not, grew up around this stuff or not. When you think of the devil, do you think more sons of anarchy or house of cards? Sons of Anarchy, a few years ago, was it A&E? Or whatever, I think it was A&E. Uh, Sons of Anarchy, this if you're not familiar with it, basically it's these warring biker gangs. And these guys, these guys are massive and they're all tatted up and they're all like chains and riding around in Harleys and horrible language, like completely numb. Violent like you wouldn't believe. And I used to watch this. I'd be in the other room and hear like five minutes straight of machine gun fire. I'm like, what are you doing in there? <laughs> or, so that's kind of the obvious in your face bad guys. Sons of anarchy. Is that what you think of when you think of the devil? Or do you think more house of cards? I'll explain a little bit more about House of Cards in a minute if you're not familiar with it, but for those of you who do watch it or have heard about it, House of Cards, it's not the obvious in-your-face, like, tatted-up biker gangs. It's the people in suits, very well-kempt and clean-cut, very polite, very educated, very uh, persuasive uh, congressmen and people in Washington, D.C. And it's a lot more subtle and hidden, normal. When you think of the devil, when you think of Satan, which do you think of? That or that? You would think that the Bible would answer, well, sons of anarchy, because I just read some crazy stuff about dragons and serpents and like angels fighting and his tail sweeping a third of the stars of heaven down. And it just, like I said, trying to find a word in the prayer, like fantastical. It sounds like, I mean, it's a step above Lord of the Rings with all the crazy stuff, with Sauron and all that. So you'd think maybe the Bible would describe him Sons of Anarchy way too. He'd be easy to spot. He's got tattoos. I'm not bashing tattoos. I'm just saying <laughs> Sons of Anarchy. Um, and he's just like, you'd be able to pick him out of a lineup. Or if you had a lineup of 100 people or 100 people from this campus, would you be able to pick him out? Actually, the Bible, and I'm confident in this, this passage would not say... It's like get sons of anarchy out of your mind. Not that that stuff's not evil. But think more house of cards. Think more normal in your world. In terms of how the devil operates in day-to-day life and throughout history, kind of the -the on-the-ground impact of who he is and what he's doing, it's much more in this clean, polite, color inside the lines, uh, Washington, D.C., than it is like, you know rough parts of L.A. where biker gangs are fighting. That's what this passage would, would have us uh, believe. Now here's what I mean by that. If you haven't seen that series, let me explain a little bit more. House of Cards is basically I think three seasons in, right? Fourth seasons coming out uh, at next month. Anne and I have been re-watching it to try to get fresh up for uh, a couple of weeks from now when it comes out, but it's a story about Frank Underwood who is a level congressman. It starts out at the beginning of the series. He's a mid-level congressman from South Carolina. Super polite Southerner. Um, he's brilliant. He's the kind of friend you want to have because when you get in a bind, Frank will get you out. Uh, if you get in trouble, he'll get you out of it. Frank's the kind of guy who just deals favors. You scratch my back, I scratch your back. He's uh, he's in church every Sunday morning back in his district when he goes to visit his his uh, constituents. Um, he, he's got the right thing to say all the time. He's uh, always well dressed. He's really well educated. And basically, season one, season two, season three, and I'm sure season four, it's the story of him climbing the ladder of power in Washington, D.C. Clawing is probably a better word, like violently clawing his way up. And there's two Frank Underwoods. The first is what I just described. That's what most people would see. Like the Frank Underwood on TV. Man, I love my congressman. He's great. He got this bridge for me. He got this money for me. He helped me when I needed him. He's in church ever, so He's a good Christian guy. The other Frank Underwood is what the, sh- the show kind of dives into after about an episode or two. And it's the real Frank Underwood. And the real Frank is just ravenously hungry for power. And he will do whatever it takes to get it. And if you get in between him and the next rung on the ladder of power, he will kill you, literally. The body toll is building up through season three. He will kill you, or have you killed. Um, so he's not just hungry for power; he's a master manipulator. He just—he has like a PhD in slander. He got even. He was vice president in season two. He got his own president. To the point of almost being impeached with a guy to resign because Frank had been spreading lies about him, had basically cornered this guy in a trap that he couldn't get out of. He's a master, an expert manipulator, truth twister. And worst of all, he's a slave master. And what I mean by that is if Frank found your weak spot or your vulnerability, he would grab hold of that and that would be what he would blackmail you on for the rest of your life until he, he, you were basically his slave. Did it with this guy, Peter Russo, this little tiny congressman from Pennsylvania. Peter got caught with a prostitute by the police one night. Frank found out about it, pulled his little, called some old friends, hey, let him out of jail. Just, he's learned his lesson. And then he goes to Peter the next day and he says, Peter, I saved your career, your marriage, and your life. Basically, you owe me. And Peter had to pay him back the rest of his life, do whatever Frank wanted him to do. He was owned. It's like selling your soul to the devil, selling your soul to Frank Underwood. And there's a lot of theories out there by people like Coolio who try to think beneath the script. And there's a lot of people out there who who think that the writers of House of Cards are intentionally casting Frank Underwood as a Satan figure, the the devil figure. And whether they're trying or not, they've done a pretty good job of of casting him that way because it's it's spot on. And here's the thing. Here's why I'm talking about House of Cards here when we're talking about the devil. House of Cards, if it's portraying Frank Underwood as the devil, it's in such a normal, everyday atmosphere. 99% of the people around him don't pick up on any of it. Don't pick up on any of it. actually say he's a pretty great guy. He's pretty put together. And this is why I started with that story. It's 2017. You're educated people. You're in college. Um, some of you grew up in the church, and this talk about devil is normal to you. Some of you, you're like, "Can I get up and leave now?" Um, but I get it. It's it's hard to talk. It's hard to say with a straight face. Yes, the Bible unapologetically, flatly asserts that there is a devil. That this being is personal. He has a name. Passage throws out several, right? Like deceiver of the world, ancient serpent, Satan, or the accuser um, asserts flatly and unapologetically that he is powerful. One swipe of his tail, whatever that means symbolically, and a third of the angels, servants of God in heaven, fall with him. Now, if, if you've ever had like a golden retriever or something wag his tail and it hits your leg, it implies you're close to him, right? You've got to be right next to a dog or uh, something that has a tail that when it swipes, it hits you. Which means he, had, he, had, he was very persuasive. He had gained a following Even in a place of perfection. So that when he swipes his tail, a third of these angels who had already started to be like, tell me more, fell. So he's personal. He has a name. He's powerful. And this passage makes very clear that this devil is trying very intently to wipe out anything connected to the God of the Bible, the true and living God. So God himself and his people and his agenda in this earth. Those are the bullseyes that the Bible says the devil has in his sights. And so, I get it, it's 2017, but when you begin to connect what I just told you about him, that he's smart, that he's personal, that he's real, that he's ancient, been around longer than you have, Uh, And that he's intent on turning upside down everything God's doing in the world. When you hear that and you think back to Frank Underwood, you're like, well, maybe there's something to this. Because there's a lot of people like Frank Underwood in the real world, right? You might have someone in your family. You might be one. Uh, You might know someone like that. This subtle, crafty, backstabbing, murderous guy, Frank Underwood. This backstabbing, murderous, crafty, and subtle devil. What else is he like? That's the first point. What's he like? What else is this devil like? One thing that he's like... or Let's say a few things that he's not. He is not eternal. He's time-bound. This passage says he's the ancient serpent, but he's also an angel. Described earlier on in the passage, he's an angel. Angels aren't eternal. They're not gods. They're created by God, just like you were. So the devil's a being he had a start date he has an expiration date he's not eternal he's time bound he's not omnipotent he's on a leash we've talked about this a few weeks ago if you've ever read Job the devil has to crawl before God himself and ask God if he can afflict God's servant Job and God puts very strict limits on what the devil is allowed to do and not allowed to do uh, to Job so he's not omnipotent he can't do whatever he wants he's on a very tight leash and the living God holds the other side of it. He's not omnipresent. He's able to be in one place at one time. Which is a big point because a lot of times you're like, the devil made me do it. I'm like, I don't think I'm high enough on the pecking order to warrant his attention. But, if he's ancient, if he has literally been around since Adam and Eve, whispering in or here, um... I think life will be much better for you if you leave this God who put this nasty restriction on eating from that tree. So trust me. If he's been around that long, he's perfected his craft. If he's been around that long, he's been a few places, right? He's been around the block. Which means he's sowed seeds of deception, seeds of accusation, seeds of truth twisting and murder and hatred and lies every square inch of this turf. So you may not encounter him personally, I hope and pray you never do, or I do. But you will certainly, absolutely encounter his influence. Seeds of his work. Ripple effects of his work. You've already encountered it today, I guarantee you. It's like if you had a carbon monoxide detector in this room. None of us would know it. But if that thing's here, it's going off. If you had a devil detector thing would be screaming all day long every day of your life you might not encounter him personally because he's not omnipresent he can be one place at a time but his influence is omnipresent in this time the other things he's not he's not God which is very important we'll come back to that in a little bit practically down to earth why does this matter what can you say the devil's like what is he not like here's some things that I want you to I want you to remember the devil is not an artist. He's a vandal. He's never made anything beautiful. The devil didn't make this sunset tonight, but he absolutely works through corporations and greed and carelessness and selfishness to put the smog in the air that turns it brown. The devil didn't make water, but he certainly made narcissistic people who dump pollutants in the rivers. The devil didn't make anything All he does is vandalize good stuff that was already there the devil is not a physician he's an assassin he's never healed anybody though he's promised to he's never comforted anybody though he's promised to he's never reintegrated or restored something or renovated something or renewed something though he's promised to all he's ever done is assassinate character marriages parents people literally and figuratively he's not a friend he's a traitor You've seen enough movies to get this part, right? We don't have to talk about that. You've seen Devil's Advocate Have you've seen Lord of the Rings or you've seen House of Cards. You get it. He's the shifty friend that persuades you. He's for you. And then when you need him most, he's there to stab the back deep through your lungs. He's not a counselor. He's a deceiver. He will act so tender to you. He will hold out such sweet sounding words of comfort to you. And when you listen to them and buy it, it's poison. He will promise you the world, just like Jesus. Turn the turn the stone to bread. Your father is keeping you. Your father is killing you. He's starving you. I'll feed you. Just eat this rock. No, he's not a counselor, he's a deceiver. He's not exciting, he's boring. This is an important one because everyone in this room thinks he's exciting and thinks God is boring you think we think sin is electrifying righteousness is grandma fest right let's be honest it's the reverse though he is the ultimate, infinitely boring one because he's never created, he's never made, he's never painted, he's never restored, he's never imagined something. All he's ever done is ruin brilliantly beautiful, pleasing, awesome stuff that God made. It's the same old plot line, the same old whispered lies for millennia. It just gets tiresome. How many marriages have you heard broken up because someone says to the other, I just don't love you anymore? You should should hear that and your eyes should roll and you'd be like, Really, devil? Try something new for once. Or I just felt lonely in my marriage and so I slept with the secretary, I slept with my neighbor. Really? Come on. Seen the movie a thousand times before. When are you going to invent a new plot line? You see people like, man, I don't I don't like church because I got hurt when I was younger in it. So I'm not gonna go to church where I'm gonna hear about the gospel of Jesus and the healing that he brings and the rescue that he brings to me. And you're like, damn, I I hate hearing that every time. Because I fall for it and you do too. But at the same time, I'm like, this is the same crap every time. He is so boring. He is so dull. He is so tiresome. He is not exciting and neither is sin. It drains life away. It cannot give life. C.S. Lewis said in Screwtape Letters, which we've been talking a lot about. This is a good semester to do that, uh, Troy and Brittany. C.S. Lewis says in Screwtape Letters, it's basically this fictitious diary of um, some uh, demons, wormwood and screw tape. And uh, he, he says this. Wormwood, uh, or sorry, Screwtape, the little the um, novice demon who's trying to learn the craft. He says, "Never forget that we are when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form. We are on the enemy's ground. Basically, we're on God's turf. I know we've won many a soul through pleasure, all the same. It is His invention, not ours. Pleasure is His invention, not ours. He made all the pleasures." our research so far has not enabled us to produce a single one all we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has made at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden which basically is to say the devil's never made anything you like he didn't make sex, he didn't make food taste good, he didn't make euphoric friendships that are awesome Uh, he didn't make endorphins that you feel when you run or you work out He didn't make the beauty of the human body. He didn't make the thrill of understanding the world. He didn't make any of that. All he can do is abuse it and turn it around on you to murder you and me. That's all he can do. He is a vandal, not an artist. He does not have a paintbrush. He has a spray paint can can to ruin what is all around us. That's what he's like. Here's why this first point is important. The batteries are dead, so we'll just amplify a little louder. Here's why this first point's important. When you look at why you keep falling into the same temptation, when you wonder, why is my family still fighting? Why are my parents still bickering 18 years after I was born? Why does horrible stuff keep happening? Why do I keep doing stupid stuff? Why did another pastor fall into sexual immorality? Why did another one of my Christian friends reject the faith, walk away from Jesus, push the church and community away? The answer is always more than just, I'm a sinner, or they're a sinner, or the world is broken. The answer has to include the devil as well. There's not just some things that are to blame for your problems. There is a someone to blame for all of these problems. And that is important that we get that. There's someone behind it all. There's a war around us and that's why there's a war inside of us. The last point, I'm, I'm spending a little extra time on this first point because it sets up the other two. The last thing is this. How does the devil's work end up affecting your life on a practical, on-the-ground way? Mythbusters was the first people to ever prove that indeed an opera singer can shatter glass uh, with his or her high-pitched, high-frequency voice. It had never been recorded before, never been videotaped or anything like that, and so people just thought it was a myth, but it's never been actually proven. In theory, they thought it would work, but uh, Mythbusters had this episode where they hired a, uh, a heavy metal lead singer. Uh, and you know, and this guy comes up, and basically they put all these high-speed cameras around him, and he holds a, a wine glass about six inches from his mouth, and he, he holds this just. Ear- Piercing note for like 20 seconds. And nobody there thinks it's going to work. They were pretty convinced this was a a definite bust. Um, The guy, the the singer, clearly didn't think it was going to work because about five seconds in, the glass just shatters and falls through his hand. And he goes, Whoa! And like backs away like that. He was so startled by it. But they proved that your voice at the right frequency, at the right pitch, can break glass. Here's how it happens. Engineers, don't correct me. I'm speaking to the common people who have no idea why this happens. <laughs> the reason this happens is because, like, let's say I'm the guy doing it and I'm holding this glass. The, the frequency and the vibration of my vocal cords and the energy that's coming out, the sound waves that are coming out of my, my mouth... They, even though they're different than this glass, they start vibrating this object at the same frequency, similar energy, those sound waves get into this cup and begin to vibrate it and it resonates, right? You've heard that term before, it resonates with my voice. So my vocal cords are vibrating at a certain pitch and now the wine glass is. Well, the problem with glasses is it's brittle, right? So if the wine glass starts shaking and vibrating the way my voice is, it's designed to do that, it breaks, it shatters, right? Listen to this. There is a sense in which, and this passage supports it, the devil in a sense is holding the world in his hand and this hellacious, horrible scream is coming out of his mouth. And he's doing it right here. And the world starts vibrating at the same frequency his hellacious scream is. And it starts shaking. It starts breaking. It shatters. And so does everything in it. That's what he's saying. How does the devil's work end up impacting your day-to-day life, your relationships, your decisions, your past? That's how. You live in a world where he is screaming at you, screaming at the world, and everything in it begins to vibrate, shake, break, and shatter at the same frequency. At least pick up this application of that point. If you've been around RF long enough, you'll hear us say a lot... Please don't try to fight sin on your own. Please don't think that you can fix yourself and become a better person on your own. Please don't think you can just, New Year's can come around and you can resolve to stop doing these evil things and start doing these righteous things so that you can get yourself back to God. Don't you understand from this how much bigger the problem is than your moral effort? You can try all you want. You still live in a world that is shaking and breaking and shattering. This is way outside of your pay grade to fix yourself and to stop doing the things the devil does. Stop wanting the things the devil wants. Stop believing his lies. This passage will say you need nothing less than Jesus himself, the devil crusher, to stand up for you, to fight for you, to protect you. So at least pick up on that. I want to stay practical here. What are the devil's tactics like? This passage says two words in particular, deception and accusation. What does that mean? Deception can take on a lot of different ways. How the devil attempts to deceive the world and not attempt, succeeds at deceiving the world in many cases. I just threw out a few. Distraction. Distraction from truly important things. Occupying you or preoccupying you with trivial things that don't matter and don't last. So it's like the shiny thing over here while things of true importance are over here. And we go for that. Plausible sounding arguments. Arguments you've heard, seen on YouTube, heard around or voiced yourself denying the existence or the goodness of the presence or the kindness of God. It's all owing to Him. It's all just resonance from His hellacious lies and His screaming at the world He hates and a God He hates and people He hates. And I think the devil will do this too. He'll open up any other way to God other than the only way to God, which is Jesus Christ slain in your place so that you can be reconciled to him. Any other way, he is happy to do it. Any other religion, any moral effort, any trying harder, any, anything you want to do, ritualism, whatever. He's happy to applaud you in your efforts because any way other than Jesus doesn't get you anywhere except by yourself. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one is rescued apart from Him. So the devil is happy to open up infinite possibilities of alternatives to Jesus Christ. Here's where this gets real, particularly Christians. The devil will deceive you through your own morality. Through trying harder, through being a good person. 22 years of my life, I had no real sense of my need of God's mercy because I really did believe I was a good guy. I was a moral guy. I tried to color inside the lines. I tried to be nice to people. I tried not to do the big bad stuff. And that kept me from Jesus for 22 years. There was a guy, an old Presbyterian minister named Donald Barnhouse. He was a pastor in Philadelphia 50 years ago. Someone asked him, what would the world be like if the devil had full control? He so, said, I don't know what the world would be like. I know what Philly would be like. And he said, If the devil took over Philadelphia, all the bars would be closed, pornography would be banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, Yes, sir, and No, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ was not preached. Don't you know how happy and willing the devil is to use morality to keep you from Jesus? Religion, ritualism, going to mass, going to this service, being super involved in this or reading your Bible? Don't you know how obliged he is to say, oh, hey, I can play ball with that. You want to be a good person? Let's do it. I'll help you. I'll give you great self-help books. It's a mind bust. He says, what would the world be like if the devil had it? It's not like rampant civil war and stuff. It's actually a really well-run, clean, tidy city where everyone's nice to each other. Church is full, but there's no gospel. The devil will deceive you and kill you through immorality too. That part is obvious. That's why I put it second, right? He will lie to you. He will whisper things in your ears that all of us believe. We're two consenting adults. I'm not taking advantage of her. She's not taking advantage of me. We love each other. Let's go for it. He'll kill you through that too. I'll get serious about God later. I'll have time later. And here's the most insidious and awful of it all. He will deceive you simultaneously through immorality and morality. Back to back, the one-two punch that knocks most of us out most of the time this is the crazy one he will whisper in your ear at your computer look at that ad click on that oh you know you've had this 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 girl you wanted to look at for weeks you heard somewhere that nude pictures have been leaked about her go google it oh yeah two hours later you're still there that's how he gets you through immorality and murders you but what does he do next he body slams you And he says, you stupid fool, you did it again. You dirty, perverted, sick person. Can you believe what you look at now? What would your friends say, your mom, your dad? what What does God think? What you just looked at, the noises you just heard. Do you see how he does it? He will sit there like a little friend and say, come here, come here, come here. This is going to be so great. And the second you do, he stabs the knife in your neck. He is a murderer and a liar. He is not fun. He's not exciting. He's not electrifying. He will kill you twice and he'll laugh while he does it. That's who the devil is. He'll encourage you to withdraw from community. He'll get you with the immorality. Man, I don't like that church anymore. I don't like that ministry anymore. Blah, blah, blah. They're this way, they're that way. He'll lead you away slowly all by yourself and then he'll get you on the other side. He'll say, look how stupid you are. You just pushed away all the people who actually loved you. You just pushed away the place that actually told you the truth. There's no way they're going to have you back. They've abandoned you. You're on your own. In your bitterness, in your anger. Go your own way. He gets us both sides, guys. Accusation's the second way he gets you. And this is specific to Christians. He said, he's the accuser of the brothers. The devil doesn't so much have beef or have a fight to pick with people who don't belong to God. Why would he? The Bible says, unless you belong to Jesus, you belong to the devil. I know it's hard to hear. It was true of all of us before Jesus made you alive. If you don't want it to be true of you tonight, run to Jesus, but it's true. The devil doesn't pick a fight with people who are already on his team. The devil hates you. I heard Matt Howell, preacher at uh, University of Tennessee, Knoxville, RUF, he said, the devil hates you worse than Michael Scott hates Toby. (laughs) The devil hates you worse more than ISIS hates Westerners. He hates you and he hates everything about you and he hates that you're growing. He hates that you have community. He hates that you're at a church that preaches the truth. He hates it all. He hates that you repent. He hates that you told that friend about your real sin struggle to ask help for that. He hates your humility. He hates that you talk to the stranger tonight instead of ignoring them. He hates it all. And he will accuse, uniquely he will accuse Christians. and your conscience will accuse you. You suck. You're not the Christian you should be. You've been a Christian this many years and you're here still? Really? He'll accuse you from your outsiders, your parents, your roommates, your friends, your classmates, whoever will laugh and giggle. When they hear what you do Tuesday nights or Sunday mornings or with your summer or with your spring break. He'll accuse you from above. Where was the devil when he's accusing you? This presumes he's doing it right this very minute. Where? Before the throne of God. So you hear some noise coming out from heaven, you you feel accused, you feel like I lost my virginity, I got an abortion. I've got this secret story I've never told anybody about, or I did this, or I've never been disciplined, I've never had this disciplined spiritual life. And you hear these things, does your heart more easily attach to his accusations or Jesus' acquittal? They're both coming from the same area, the same throne of God. That's where the devil accuses you, and that's where Jesus is gladly speaking over you, full acquittal. You are innocent. You are good. You are delightful. I love you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'm asking you, though, which resonates in your ear longer? The devil hurling out accusations about what's true, right? Probably a little bit true. Like, I should be further along as a Christian. Probably been, you know? Went to seminary. I'm 36. I think I'd be a little more mature than I'm not. So it's true. But do I hear that or do I hear Jesus saying, I don't love you because you're mature immature. I love you because I'm mature and I made you mature. I love you because I made you clean. I love you because I gave my life for you. He will accuse us every which way because He hates your faith. He hates everything about it. I want to throw at you three or four practical situations. Let me close with Jesus. Why these tactics? Why the deception the way he does it? Why the accusation the way he does it? Why? Because it's your faith. It's your confidence in the gospel. The devil is not out to pick a fight with anybody. He has very specific, narrow purposes. He's not just arbitrarily angry. He's angry about a very specific thing in your life. And it's your clinging to Jesus and his mercy. That's what he can't tolerate. Everything else he can make peace with, that's what he won't make peace with. And it's all over the passage. It's 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 their testimony of Jesus that they held to in verse 17. It's the keeping of the commandments in verse 17. It's the word of their testimony in verse 10. That's what he hates. Your confidence that God gave himself to save you from yourself. So here's what that means. When you decide to start reading your Bible again because you want to be fresh and alert to God. Maybe you go home tonight and you say, man, I've never thought about the devil that way. I actually want to know God better. Like I actually want to get to know him better and be fresh in my relationship with him. This means the devil will attack you there by discouraging you with things like, see, that wasn't fresh. That felt dull and boring. You didn't get anything out of that. It means when the Spirit convicts you that it's time to let people see the real you and know the real struggles you face every day, you better believe the devil or his influence will be right there warning you that all your friends are never going to look at you the same if you tell them that. Right? It means that when you know your only way forward with a friend is confrontation or loving rebuke, his influence will certainly be there telling you to keep the peace, put it off, see if time will heal, and you'll never have the conversation. It means if you're hearing week after week here or at church or from a friend or a book you're reading, that God has opened up a door of shelter for you to run to no matter who you are or what your past is like. It means that in that moment His influence will be there convincing you that getting the B- bumped up to a B-plus is really your top priority not finding shelter in the living God whom you will face. It means when you realize Jesus has freed you from slavery to sin and you start to push back against temptation, you better believe he'll be there overestimating the cost of obedience and underestimating the benefit of obedience. And in this region of the country, the devil speaks our dialect very well. The land of Manana It means when you think it's time to start taking God seriously, he'll just tack on tomorrow. Tomorrow. It's 11 o'clock. You're tired. Tomorrow. And tomorrow he'll say tomorrow. And tomorrow he'll say tomorrow. And the next tomorrow he'll say tomorrow. Friends, how do you resist him? Let me go back to that vibration illustration from Mythbusters. How could how could there, the wine glass broke, but the two Mythbuster guys didn't shatter, nor did the cameras or the speakers or anything else in that sound studio. Only the glass broke. Christian, how can you resist the devil and see him for the liar, the murderer, the accuser, the backstabber, the racist, the bigot that he is? By knowing what we talked about tonight, number one, by knowing the true Jesus, that He is good, that He is kind, that He is for the sinner, the unhealthy, the sick, the alienated. That He came to save people, yes, just like you, yes, who did things just like you did. Knowing Jesus, knowing the devil, what He's like. And by being connected to an object much denser and bigger than yourself, right? That's the only explanation for why the only thing in that sound studio that shattered when the when the heavy metal guy... Uh, hit that note the only thing that vibrated and resonated with it was the wine glass because it was brittle it was alone it was fragile this is what everything in here is about Is like they were saved they conquered the devil by the blood of the lamb they held tight to his testimony meaning his words his acquittal not his accusations they wouldn't let go that's how you resist the devil that's how you call him a liar to his face that's how you argue with his accusations and like Martin Luther said when he was assaulted by the devil, he said, when the devil comes and torments me, I say, what of it? What of it? Yeah, everything you said is true. I did that, I did that, I did that, and I haven't done this in three weeks, and I should have. What of it? He said, I know one who has suffered and died on my behalf to make me reconciled to God forever, clean, innocent, good forever. So we started arguing with the devil. You have to know what the devil's like. You have to know what Jesus is like. You have to know his tactics. And you have to be connected to an object much bigger and denser than you. Unless you yourself also will shatter, shake, and break. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would show us you're the devil crusher. Genesis 3. Barely two pages of scripture is written. And you have already promised that you will crush the head of the devil. And you did that on the cross. When he thought he won, he lost. Because there you defeated evil. There you delivered the death blow to him. There you fought for us. There you protected us. There you got in between him and your people and took the blow. So I pray tonight, Lord, that if there are any vulnerable to His lies and deception, would You show Your power by simply with a single word, rise, or see, or believe. With a single word, would You show how weak He is, how foolish, and how stupid He is? We ask this in Your name. Amen.